Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in Engrave.io shop with the code REALVISION. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Here's what's coming up on this edition of My Life in Four Trades. I loaded up so much. I did not take into account risk. I did not take into account what the worst case scenario would be. Could I survive it? And so around 10, 20 a.m., I sell everything. And then five minutes later, the market started to rally and it rallied straight up for the next three months. If I had just held on, I would have had tens of millions of dollars. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is James Altucher. James is an entrepreneur, angel investor, author, and podcast host. In fact, there doesn't seem to be much James isn't involved in, which is exactly why we were so excited to sit down with him and learn more about his journey. Enjoy the conversation. So hi, James. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Maggie, what a great concept podcast this is, like My Life in Four Trades. It's so interesting because... Obviously, some trades lose money, some trades make money, some trades lose a lot of money, like life-changing money, some trades make life-changing money, and there's so many lessons to be learned from trades, and not just lessons about investing, but lessons about yourself and discipline and focus and mastery of, of something as critical as investing, like, like not to hog this opening here, but when you invest, it's not a job, it's your life is on the line. Like you could lose money. You, you can't lose money at a job. You could, you could lose time, but not money. But you could lose money and you eat what you kill. You only, there were, there were many periods in my life where I could literally only eat if my trades were good. Yeah, I think you beautifully understand the concept. And I'm not sure we fully realized that when we started, but through the conversations, it really is more about people's lives and sort of decision-making, how they deal with failure, how they deal with risk. It's been so fascinating. Yeah, no, risk, dealing with failure, these are all important concepts. But also there's the insight, and this is is a very well-known concept in poker, but there's the insight in investing where you could make a right decision, which you should do every single time, and still lose money, which is Mm -hmm. fine. If you're making the right decisions, it's fine to lose money. And similarly, you can make a bad decision and make a lot of money. And those are very dangerous because then you'll continue to make those bad decisions until you lose a lot of money. And so people think, oh, you know, I'm a genius. I made a trade and, it, and I'm up 300% in a day. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, that's probably was a really bad trade, but there's absolutely no way to tell that person that that was a bad trade. So before we jump in, to your trades. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you go up and, and what were the early years like? I, I did my undergrad in computer science. I went to graduate school for computer science. I was thrown out of graduate school because I, I wanted to be, you know, a young, great American novelist. So I started writing all day, every day and failing all my classes. And eventually they asked me to leave. Although there's an open invitation for me to return, but it's been it's been 30 years, so I don't know. And uh, 
Uh, but then I was a programmer. Well, I was still I was still writing every single day. I really wanted to be a writer, but I but programming was a way to make money. And then I, I I've switched careers a lot. Then I worked at HBO. I worked in the entertainment business. I, I and then I built their website. And this was back in 1995, 96, when no companies had websites. So other companies approached me and said, "Hey." can you build websites for us? And so I did websites for almost every entertainment company out there at that time in the mid nineties. Like you name the entertainment company. I probably did either their main website or some websites for them, particularly all the record labels, all the movie studios and so on. And, uh, then I sold that company. I built a, a big company with millions of revenues. I never had a more than a hundred dollars cash in my bank in my life. And I sometimes to make ends meet for the company, I would forego salary and it was very difficult. Running a business is almost as hard as trading. And uh, uh, I sold that company and so I had some money. So I got a stockbroker for the first time. And I remember my very first trade, I, I bought like a thousand shares of Intel. It went up a dollar and I made a thousand dollars. And I'm like, that was just, that was within seconds. I made a thousand dollars. This is incredible. And so I was an, I will say an amateur trader for a few years. And then, um, I lost a lot of money trading as an amateur and particularly when the dot-com bubble burst. So what I did was I wrote some software because I have my computer science background. I wrote some software to take all the data from the markets for the prior 70 years and used it to come up with statistically significant patterns that I felt were tradable. And so that was the bulk of my trading for the next decade after that, although with some exceptions, which we could talk about, but uh, yeah, and then and then my my tra and then I I started a hedge fund and it it was doing very well. I started a fund of hedge funds where I invested in people's money in other hedge funds that I thought were good. I was a started a venture capital firm. I've done a lot of angel investing. Uh, I've been heavily involved in crypto investing in recent years, and I've had a lot of because of the fund of hedge funds and also because I've written a lot of books about investing, mm -hmm. I've had to really research and, and understand at a professional level many different investing strategies, whether it was you know, basic value investing or growth investing or convertible arbitrage or merger arbitrage or something called pipe investing or, or like I mentioned, venture capital investing and all sorts of alternative styles of investing. I had to become literally like an, an expert in. And I also had to really understand the economy because I was writing for the Wall Street Journal. I was writing for the Financial Times. I was writing for the Yahoo Finance. So I finally took my interest in writing, my interest in computers and my interest in investing, and they all sort of merged together. And I had a career as an investor and a career as a, a writer about investing. And my tech background, you know, helped me with the venture capital investing. Yes. I was just going to say, it's a really interesting intersection that you were at, having a foot in all those worlds. Before we move further, though, if the sort of young version of you was able to see in the future, is it surprising that you got so involved in finance? I mean, was this a world that you that you were aware of when you were young? Anyone in your family involved? Like, did you n even know there was such a thing as investing? Yeah, no, I was, I never studied it, but I was always interested in investing as a kid, but I wasn't like some of these people, like that's all they did and then as kids and they knew that that's what they wanted to do is work at a bank. I was on and off casually interested enough to read a book here and there, to read about you know biographies of famous rich people from the past. I knew 
what a stock was. I knew a little bit about options, but not much more. And I didn't really have an opinion on, I didn't really know anything about the economy. I didn't have an opinion on the economy. I didn't know how to value stocks. I didn't know, you know, you described earlier, like learning about risk, learning about how to deal with failure. I didn't understand those concepts at all and their relevance. All the things that are important about investing, I had no idea and no clue about. I just knew you could get rich that way. So let's dive into your first trade, and that is September 11th, 2001. So set the scene for us. Where are you? What's going on in your life? And and what is that trade exactly? Sure. So I'm at the World Trade Center and oh my gosh. 9-11. There was a Dean and DeLuca on the first floor where my business partner and I had breakfast every morning. So we ate at the Dean and DeLuca, and then we're walking to my apartment, which was also our office that we day traded out of. And it was just three blocks from the World Trade Center. So we had just left Dean and DeLuca and my business partner's name's Dan. Dan turns to me and says, uh, is the president coming to New York today? And I'm like, I don't know why. And he's like, well, that plane's really low. And we were walking up Church Street and the plane was right over Church Street. It was like in a second, it went, it was just 600 feet above us. Everybody kind of ducked in the street because the sound was huge. And then it went, we saw it go right into the World Trade Center. So I don't think many people actually saw the plane go into the World Trade Center unless you happened to be on the street with us right then. And of course, it was very scary and it was very horrible and all sorts of horrible things happened that day. But, you know, I had some trades on. We were, we were day trading and we had some trades on. And I remember I was too, I was shaking too much. We ran to my apartment, my our office, and I was shaking too much to make the trade. So we called our broker and and we couldn't, he couldn't even understand us. He's like, slow, slow down, slow down, slow down. What's going on? And and I said, well, a plane, a jet just hit the World Trade Center. And he said, we thought it was just like a helicopter. And I said, no, it was a, an American Airlines jet. You could see the logo. And he hung up because he was at the, on like the top floor of the Empire State Building. So oh, I, he, yeah. they all left and I couldn't get the trades away. And by the way, I had made a very good trade the day before, or, or, which was, uh, you know, the market had fallen four or five days in a row before 9-11, probably because, you know, maybe some people affiliated with the terrorists knew what was going on and they were selling the market huge. So, so my software was triggering that the entire market was a massive buy. So we had bought the market and, and things were looking good that morning at, you know, when the first plane hit futures were, were up, it was looked like it was going to be a great trade. We were happy at breakfast, but then of course they shut down the market. We waited a week and, uh, you know, the market opened up like a week later. And at first the market popped a little bit, and then the market started going down. And I felt for sure that this was irrational, that yes, this was a horrible thing that happened, but the economy would rebound. America was strong. I saw how New York City was rallying, you know, behind the economy and behind everything that was going on. So I bought more. So this was like on a Tuesday, the, the week after. And then Wednesday, the market went down further. I bought more. Thursday, um, I go leverage and I'm buying more and more and more. Friday morning, I buy more. And so this is one of those cases where my 
decision, or rather my idea was correct. The market was going to pop, but I loaded up so much. I did not take into account risk. I did not take into account what the worst case scenario would be. Could I survive it? I was day trading my own money and I was leveraged everything. I, I invest, I don't know what I was thinking. I was invested like all my net worth times two <laughs> and maybe times three, uh, you know, on the day. And I finally, I quit, the market was going down on the Friday morning and I couldn't take it anymore. And so around 10, 20 AM, I sell everything and I barely, I just, I went broke. I ended up losing my home because of this. And then five minutes later, the market started to rally and it rallied straight up for the next three months. If I had just held on Ugh. a few more hours, I would have not only would I would have du doubled or tripled my net worth. And that's how leveraged I was though. And if I had held on three months, I would have had, I don't know, you know, I had just sold a company. So I had significant amount of money. I would have had tens of millions of dollars. And uh, instead at the bottom, I sold and I barely had enough mm -hmm. to meet my mortgage for a few more months. I had to put up my house for sale and then I couldn't pay the mortgage and I had to, all sorts of bad things happen. I, I went broke. And again, this is a great example where my f idea was correct, but I did not understand risk. Risk is so much more important than having the right idea because yes, you can get wealthy trading, but the key to winning the game is staying in the game. And I prevented myself from, from staying in the game. For the next year, because I couldn't sell my house. I lived right next to 9-11. It was a crime scene. For the next six months, there was the smell. The That's smoke right. was, still, was still going. That's right. And I literally had to make 100% a month day trading for the next mm. eight months during a bear market in order to survive. In order, I had two kids. In order to pay, literally pay for diapers, it was so stressful. It was maybe one of the worst times of my life. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And I will say you had to do that in an environment where the entire city, the entire country, but particularly New Yorkers, were totally traumatized. Like I also, I was at the New York Stock Exchange when the plane hit. There was debris everywhere in addition to the burning building. So you're lucky that you survived at all, really, given where you were. You know, it was, it was scary because we didn't know it was going to happen. Obviously, you didn't know it was going to happen either. Like if you were at the New York Stock Exchange, by the time you left, maybe the buildings had already fallen and the, the black cloud was everywhere. And we had a, a very secure apartment. And so some of the neighbors came to our apartment, but I remember I was standing on the roof and the buildings were collapsing and I went downstairs and I said, this is horrible. And then the black cloud surrounded mm -hmm. the whole, our whole building. And my wife was pregnant at the time. So we decided not to leave. There were, there were horns blasting, like you have to leave. Everybody has to evacuate. So we didn't leave because I didn't know what asbestos, I, she was pregnant. I didn't want her breathing mm -hmm. in asbestos. We had very strong windows. So the next morning, it was surreal. You wake up, it was the most beautiful weather and there were tanks. The only thing moving, there were just tanks and people in hazmat suits all over the place. And so finally, I, I, we got a hold of our car and we're driving out. No one else is driving out. There's three checkpoints. Each checkpoint, they're shining their light at us. Like, why? 
Why were you in there? You had to evacuate. It was probably a wise decision, actually, because there was a lot of, as we know now, a lot of stuff that was floating around, a lot of dangerous material. So that was probably a wise decision. Oh, yeah. But the, the flip side was we didn't know what it meant that buildings were falling down. Like, so we took turns listening to the radio all night long. And, you know, my business partner stayed over as well. We took turns listening to the radio all night long just to see if where there was an emergency, the, our building was going to collapse or, or something else was happening. Actually, I'm like tearing up thinking about it because, you know, not only was 9-11 so horrible for everybody and particularly for the people in the building, you know, God rest their souls and, and their families. But for me, you know, and also I was worried about money, but I saw with my own eyes a plane crash in that instant, you know, a lot of people die. It would, took about five or six years before the nightmares ended. Like it was, it was, it was like every week for a while, then it was every month and yeah. every six months and probably around 2006, 2007, and they really slowed down. But it was, yeah. I never knew what, P, I thought PTSD was just in people's imagination, but it was a real thing. It's real. And that's, you know, on a large scale, except for people who, who live in war zones every day, which sadly many are experiencing right now, that collective trauma is very difficult. Looking back now, do you think some of that influenced you when you were trying to make decisions about- I was completely stupid to be trading. There's so many meta things about trading. I don't really care if someone has the right idea or not. Like if you do it long enough, you're going to have good ideas and you're going to be able to have good opinions about what to invest in. It's so important. Not, not only there's the first meta level, which is to take into account risk is very important. And then there's the second level, which is, am I psychologically capable? Is, is, is my mindset in the right space mm. to, to be doing this? It's the same thing if like, if you're a competitive athlete, for instance, and don't play in a, in a high stakes you know, sports event, if you're going through a divorce and that's on your mind, just as an example, because then it's going to take away energy. Everyone else in the field is going to have energy, but you're going to have not, you're going to have 70% of your energy. And, you know, it's, it's so important. Like I should not have been making trading decisions maybe for six months after that. Like I should have just taken some time and instead I thought, oh no, I'm going to get rich now. That's not the way to get rich. And there are ways to get rich, but that's not one of them. And I, I mean, I became suicidal during this period. Like it was just, it was just horrible. Like, and then I owed some taxes to the IRS, but I had just lost all my money and I had to pay a mortgage and I had a baby coming and I already had a two-year-old. How did you find the strength to move forward? How did you, I don't want to even use bounce back from that because it seems glib, but how did you keep going? Well, Two things. One is I had to, like I had to pay for my kids. I mean, I had a two-year-old and a baby and I had to do it. And then the other thing was, there's one time I, I bought a box of waiter's pads. I always liked the design of waiter's pads. And this was in July of 2022. So it's like nine months later. And I was depressed every single day up until this point. And I was going broke. I was already losing my house. That was a, a foregone conclusion. I had no money left. And I started using these waiter's pads. I'd go out in the morning and I would write, just for practice, I would write 10 ideas a day. Oh, here's 10 trading strategies I should write some software about. Here's 
10 ideas for a book. Here's 10 chapters in a book I might write. Here's 10 ideas for another hedge fund manager. If I knew, if I knew Warren Buffett's style, here's 10 stock ideas for him. And I might even, I, in many cases, I tried to send those ideas to, I came up with ideas for other people. And just this process of coming up with 10 ideas every single day, within like a couple of weeks, I was feeling excited yeah. about some of my ideas. And I was feeling, and, and I was sending the ideas to other people and some of them were responding. And I, I sent 10 ideas for articles for, that Jim Cramer should write. And he wrote back right away and, he, and I never met him. He wrote back and said, why don't you write these articles? And suddenly I was writing for thestreet.com, which led to the Financial Times, which led to the Wall Street Journal and CNBC. I sent 10 pieces of software to another hedge fund manager here. This is your style. I'll train your, your traders how to use these, this software and you don't owe me anything, nothing. And he allocated money for me to invest. So that's how I was able to start a hedge fund. So many things happened because I was writing these 10 ideas a day and I just start feeling more creative. I start feeling like, okay, I'm down, but I'm not out because I have ideas left. Mm -hmm. And as long as you still have ideas, people say ideas are a dime a dozen. It's not true. It's hard to have good ideas. And then of course, it's hard to execute them. And execution is all about having execution ideas. So you have to have good execution ideas. So that really let me bounce back. And then finally sold the house, moved 90 miles away from the city just to, cause I couldn't afford anything else and in the city. And I just built back up, but I started writing every day and I started writing for more. I started writing books. I started building a hedge fund. I understood risk a little better. I started getting better at, at risk management. Not great yet, but better. And I built back up. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So your second trade is an energy company preferred stocks in 2009. Yeah. So, so what were the circumstances around this? So obviously in September of 2008, October of 2008, the markets were going crazy. And I was still trading with software then. So so my software in particular was, I would do kind of an arbitrage. Like let's say American Airlines and United Airlines, one went up and the other went down for three days in a row. So they would spread apart. They would go in different directions. Well, you, technically United and American in most cases should trade together. They sh One shouldn't go up and the other goes down three or four days in a row. That's a little bit irrational. So the one that went up, I would short, and the one that went down, I would go long. And I was doing this with pairs of companies. I would use software to figure out what, pair, what pairs of stocks were most correlated and also what countries were correlated. So Canada and the US are correlated, but Canada and Australia are also correlated. So sometimes Canada would follow Australia too much and sometimes Canada would follow the US too much. So that would create these arbitrage situations where I would snap them back together. But what I noticed in September and October of 2008 and 2009 is that no software was working. Mm. Anything that was software-based, it wouldn't work because money flowing into the markets and out of the markets, you didn't know which hedge fund was blowing up. They might've owned United Airlines and they were liquidating positions. So previously, if my software said three or four days and they'll snap back together, it might be 10 days before they snap back together. So I was losing money 
on those trades. Yeah. And just for context, for those who may not have been in trading it at that time. So it's the great financial crisis, right? We've had Bear Stearns go down, Lehman. I mean, the unthinkable was happening. A lot of people refer to it as the wheels coming off the global financial system. Um, liquidity was drying up. So when James is talking about things not working, I mean, j- you just didn't know. You couldn't see. Everybody was super fearful. And so, yeah, it wasn't business as usual. And people didn't know if it would be, by the way. Nothing was safe. So I took a step back, and this was the first time in years where I decided I'm not going to trade based on software. Mm-hmm. So I looked, I looked longer term for situations that were very, very irrational. There's, there's a type of stock called a close-end fund. So close-end fund, I won't get too much into the details, but it tra- trades on the stock exchange like anything else. But they're, they're like mutual funds that are stocks. So the value of a closed-end fund, the value of a mutual fund, like Fidelity, always equals all the amounts of stocks they have added up. So they have a billion dollars worth of stocks, then Fidelity Magellan is worth a billion dollars. But closed-end funds trade like a stock. So they they might have a billion dollars worth of stocks, but if everybody's dumping the stock, the the closed-end fund, it might only trade for $700 million. So you could buy the whole closed-end fund for $700 million, liquidate it, and cash out of a, uh, with a billion. Very irrational situations. And so I saw these closed-end funds that, were have, that had like 15, 20% dividends, which was unreal, and were trading at a 30% discount to what is called their net asset value. So it's as if, it's as if someone had a wallet with $100, but he was willing to sell it to me for $70. That is actually, I'm not even making an analogy. That is actually literally what it was. And the reason was is because mutual funds were liquidating. So anybody who owned these closing funds were liquidating no matter what the price. And that was driving the price down, even though it was irrational. By the way, this is the strategy. This is the exact strategy Warren Buffett used in the 50s and early 60s. This is very Benjamin Graham style. It's called cigar butt stocks, where it's you could Warren Buffett would say, it's as if you could you found a cigarette on the sidewalk and it's still you could pick it up and it still had one puff left. And so <laughs> That's what these closed-end funds were. So I, I bought a whole bunch of these closed-end funds that not only did they have a discount that would eventually close, they wouldn't have such a large discount anymore, but they were at 20% dividends or, or 12% dividends, r- ridiculous dividends. And eventually they all did come back. So it took a while. It took I, I owned them for about a year and a half, and it was a very good it was a very good trade. Do you think that your experience, especially, you know, we talked about 9-11, about not understanding risk and about just relying on programming. And, you know, the, the great financial crisis was in a very, again, traumatic time for people. Do you feel like the experiences you learned that time around helped you out in this situation to be able to? Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. For one thing, I didn't just blindly rely on my software, which is what I was doing in the 9-11 situation. The other thing, I did not use leverage. Now, I did invest quite a bit because these were very irrational situations, but I did not double down on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I instead kept looking for more and more irrational situations. And, you know, and I, I legged into these tra- trades over a period of a few months. I'm not saying, by the way, it wasn't scary. Again, I was day, at, at that time, I was no longer doing a hedge fund. I was day trading my own money and I was perilously low, but- because I was managing my risk a little bit better, uh, and and I was I understood I needed to be able to wait this out not just a few hours or a few days, but potentially mm-hmm. six months to a year. 
I understood that that was the time frame of these trades. I managed my risk accordingly. So I knew it was a good idea, but I just needed to understand what the risks were. And the, the risks were is that, you know, as John Maynard Keaton said, said uh, you know, the markets could remain irrational longer than you could remain solvent. So I had to make sure I remained solvent. Yeah. So did you did you feel that after this, and this ends up being a good, uh, you know, a winning trade for you, and you do well off of it? Did you feel like you're on more solid footing? Do you feel more confident about your skills? You know, what was your takeaway from that? Yeah, I was very confident in my skills, but by then I had earned it. Like then, I had been trading for yes. a, a professionally for almost a decade. You, you know, I had written about four or five books on investing at that time, and when you write a book on investing you have to do a lot of research. Like I wrote a book about Warren Buffett. So I had to really research every trade. I did I did a book about Warren Buffett's early trades, not his famous trades like Coca-Cola and all those, but when he was trading as a beginning hedge fund manager in the 50s and 60s. It's not widely available like his letters that he was writing then. Uh, and so I, I got a hold of some of his private letters that he was writing then, and I studied every trade. And, and I think that helped me a lot as well. So your third trade is pretty soon after that, and it's July 4th, holiday, national holiday here in the U.S., 2010, debating Noriel Rubini on CNBC. How did this come about, and why does this feature as one of your trades? Starting in March 2009, the market started rebounding permanently. I mean, it's never gone that low again. So the market started rebounding. But then in, in July of, in June, July of 2010, a year later, the market, I, I don't know if we reached bear market territory, but the market fell about 20%. And everybody was saying, it's over, the bull run, the bounce back from the 2009 was over, and uh, now things are going to collapse. But I was really strongly bullish. I didn't, I had a long-term portfolio at this point. I didn't add to it, but I wasn't selling it. And, and I was writing quite a bit that there are many reasons to be bullish. Apple was trading for something like six times earnings. Uh, and, 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 you know, they were putting out the iPad and, and, and selling enormous numbers of iPhones. There's no reason for it to trade for six times earnings. Um, but there were a lot of stocks like that. Also, in 2008, 2009, there were these huge bailout packages. And the economy, it's not like the economy, when there's a stimulus package, like let's say how there was in COVID, it's not like the economy reacts to that in one day. It takes 12 to 18 months for that money to filter through the economy. So we hadn't even really seen the positive effects of the stimulus packages from 2009 because it is only 12 months later. Maybe we were just beginning to see it. And there's also a lot of subtleties and nuances to how why the financial crisis happened, why there wasn't going to be another financial crisis. The banks mm -hmm. had more money in reserves than ever they had before. There was more regulation about you know what kind of derivatives they could trade. Things were good. And there was no reason for the market to go down. I was more confident about this than pretty much any other trade ever. And so I go, so CNBC asked me to go on because I've been writing on, in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times and other places that this market is going up. It's, it's down irrationally. And Nuri Robini is on there. He's known as Dr. Doom because every other day he predicts that the market's going to collapse and every now and then it does collapse and he's right. And so he was on and he was saying the market was going to go down another 20%. And, 
And I was saying, well, how could that be? Is Apple going to trade for three times earnings? Like, is is Microsoft going to trade for one times earnings? Like, it's just it just didn't make any sense to me. There was a lot of cash. The S&P companies had more cash than they ever had. Their earnings were at all-time highs. There was just no and – and there wasn't anything bad politically happening. Like, there was no – there wasn't, like, a war. You know, I mean, there was wars going on, but it wasn't, like, in, mm. in the news the way, you know – there was there was nothing happening in the world. It was just the market was taking a breather in the summer. And I was a little bit lucky there because, you know, that was on July 4th. July 5th, the market was open and the market started going up then. I, th I think it was around 1,000. The S&P 500 was about 1,000. The market has never hit 1,000 again. So it was always, I always remember because there's a video of me debating Rubini and he was so totally wrong. <laughs> and I can't stand how he's so bearish just because, that's what sells newsletters for him, I guess, because people buy newsletters to know when to panic, and panic sells more than – basically, fear sells more than greed. Mm. And I'm always an optimist on the market. Like, every year, things are better than the year before. Even now, we've had COVID, we have pandemics, we have wars, we have all this stuff, but there's so much innovation happening in the United States in – you know, it used to be in internet tech, but now it's in biotech and genomics and energy alternatives and crypto and automation, you know, all these amazing innovations. Do you think your technology background enables you to see that, that innovation potential in a way that other people may be more skeptical around? Because we, we do have the, a big pushback now. You know, there are people who think it's this 1970s again. In terms of my technology background, no. But what, but what does help is reading a lot. So mm. even if you don't read like the news about innovation, there's a couple of good books to read, like um, a book called Abundance by Peter Diamandis. He describes all these exponentially growing industries. There's a book uh, by Matt Ridley. The Rational Optimist uh, is a very good book. It, it basically just shows how things tend to get better all the time, yeah. even though it doesn't seem that way. Like Steven Pinker, for instance, has a great book about the history of violence. And this is gonna sound like an odd statistic, but every century since the dawn of civilization has had less violence than the century before. And so you think last century, oh, we had atomic bombs, we had World War II, we had World War I, Vietnam, Korea, but per capita, deaths from violence were less a percentage of deaths than the 19th century, so which was less than the 18th century and so on. So things do have a tendency to get better, but sometimes it's, people don't see that. Yeah. Do you think we're overly fixated on the negative right now? We're always overly fi fixated on the negative and for, for strong evolutionary reasons. If you were passing a, a bush 200,000 years ago and you heard some rustling in there, you're not going to say, well, probably it's just the wind. You're just going to take off running because it might be a lion. So the, the humans <laughs> who, were, who were like, ah, it's nothing, they have no descendants, those humans. So we, <laughs> the, the humans that live now, only of, of are descendants of the ones who ran all the time because they correctly were afraid. And so fear is a much stronger emotion than rational thinking. Your fourth trade and final trade is a really interesting one because it is in this kind of 
bold new area where there are plenty of people who are fearful, who are negative, who are doomsayers, who think this is just the riskiest, most terrible thing in the world. Um, and that is in the area of cryptocurrency. So your trade is setting up a Bitcoin store in 2013. So give us the backdrop for this. So I, I used to have these Q&A sessions on Twitter. Every Thursday, I did this for six years. Every Thursday from like 3.30 to 4.30, I would have anybody could ask me, I had a lot of readers, anybody could ask me questions and I would answer them. And a lot of people were asking me about this new thing, Bitcoin. And I remember in March, 2013, I said, oh, Bitcoin's a scam. Like, I didn't trust it. Like, what is it? It's not anything. And so Naval Ravikant, who's really an investor, he started AngelList. He started a bunch of companies. He's an early investor in Uber and Twitter. He calls me up and says, no, no, no. Bitcoin is the real deal. Uh, I'm going to be in New York. Let's get together. And so he spent a day. He kind of had, had a whiteboard up. He spent a day explaining to me from Bitcoin. And, you know, I was blown away. I had no idea anything about Bitcoin. So I changed my mind. And and sometimes people said, oh, no, you said this in March 2013. Well, people change their minds. I learned new information. They learn, they right. evolve. I learned new information. <laughs> and then, of course, I didn't just stop my education there. I've been learning about crypto every day since. I mean, and this is not a crypto podcast, but it's it's we haven't even begun to see the ways in which crypto is truly revolutionary and is going to change the economy. And that's another topic. But at the same time, I was writing a book called Choose Yourself, and this would be my best-selling book. This would end up being my best-selling book ever. And I was self-publishing it and doing a real, I was doing what I call professional self-publishing. Like I hired a cover designer. I hired really good editors. I hired a marketing firm. Um, I was really doing it as if I was a real publishing company. And one of the things I did was a month before I was releasing it on Amazon, I created, because I have a software background, I created my own store where I was selling the PDF of the book, Choose Yourself, for 0.1 Bitcoins. I think Bitcoin was about $100 then. So it was about $10 I was selling each PDF of Choose Yourself. And about, I launched this store, I wrote about it, and about 60 people paid 0.1 Bitcoin for the PDF of Choose Yourself, which now, looking back on it, they spent $2,200 for a PDF file, <laughs> and I ended up with about six Bitcoins, and that's the first Bitcoins that I owned, and that was a successful trade, which, which, by the way, I did for the wrong reasons. I didn't think it would go up to, I didn't know where it was going to go. I was just, I believed in the technology, and I believed this was going to be game-changing, but I wasn't really a speculator. In, I didn't buy any Bitcoin at that time. I just, I had Bitcoin from this. But I remember at one point, CNBC had me on, and I forget who the anchor was. And the anchor said to me, did you, so I, we talked about crypto and Bitcoin a little bit, but, and then he said, did you just do this though as a marketing stunt? And I said, well, it got me on national TV, so it worked. <laughs> what do you make of the fact that people seem really tribal about this topic? I, I think more than an, any other asset, like there's, the people who hate it are just really visceral. It feels personal. I, I feel like people read enough and learn enough to be dangerous. So I was talking to somebody who is a well-known investor, businessman. This was on my podcast. So I, I could even say his name is Kev, Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank. And by the way, he has a great Bitcoin-oriented company called WonderFi, 
which I do believe solves a lot of the problems of ease of use in the crypto world and so on. But he was saying to me, for instance, that the Ethereum merge is never going to happen. He said that the Ethereum merge is never going to happen. And it just showed me he doesn't really read what the developers are saying in their personal blogs. He doesn't really read the discords and the message boards where the developers are actually testing the latest code and, and all this stuff. But I do read that because it's a very complicated topic. I don't understand all of it, and but I want to learn as much as possible. And to me, it's pretty clear the Ethereum merge is happening. Well, whether you believe that or not is changes your investment bias. And some people feel very strongly one way and so other people feel very strongly another way. And you're right, I think they get tribal about it and they refuse to learn more. Like I have one friend who says, tell me something Bitcoin or Ethereum can do that you can't just do on the internet with regular software. And so I described something to him, it's not important what it was. And he was like, hmm, let me think about it. And the next morning he wrote a, a rebuttal to me why it wouldn't work. And I wrote a rebuttal back, no, this is why it's gonna work. That's, that problem's already been solved. If you read this stuff, you would, you would know that. And then he never wrote to me again. So people, people like stay in their lane rather than accept new information. And it's very important with investing to be able to change your mind and to accept new information. Yeah. You make money by changing your mind at the right moments. Like every time you change your mind is gonna be a money-making moment, but you have to be open to it. You can't just have one philosophy. For instance, I might be dangerous because I have a, I, I'm, I'm an optimist about the world and the economy. And every single time, every year, people say, this, this is it, it's over, the world is over. Every year that happens. And then the world's never over. It's like, um, it's like last election. You would hear all the time, this is the most important election we've ever had. Well, I went to newspapers.com and I searched in every election year since 1820, newspapers have called that election the most important election we've ever had. So people just repeat themselves over and over again on their negativity, and they just refuse to learn from the past. So what was your takeaway? What was your lesson from this trade, do you think? Because clearly, I, I think you view this as a positive trade, as one of your best trades, right? Yeah. So my, my takeaway is that, A, it's important to be able to change your mind. I, again, a few months before I built this Bitcoin store, I very publicly called Bitcoin a scam. And people have never let me forget it. Like people think it's embarrassing to me. Look, he, here's a copy of the tweet from March, 2013, where he called it a scam. And now nine years later, he likes it. So what? Like you should be able to change your mind on occasion. Warren Buffett famously changed his mind on his entire investing strategy when he bought American Express in 19, he put a third of his portfolio in American Express when they were in the midst of a, a bit, what's called the salad oil scandal. And it looked like American Express was going to go bankrupt, but he did something he never did before, which is he bought a company based on its perceived brand value as opposed to its actual assets in the bank. That's the first time he ever did that. Mm -hmm. And it, it made that's what made him his billions, ultimately, is that change in approach. So changing your mind is very important in investing. Not every day. You, you need to be consistent as consistent as possible. But if new information comes in and smart people educate you, and again, you're the average of the five people you spend your time with, the smartest person on the planet in Bitcoin educated me on it. And then I continued my own reading and I changed my mind. So that's very important. The other thing is, you know, some people are value investors, some people are growth investors, some people are arbitrage investors. It's very important. Some people buy real estate. It's very important to be open 
to every style of investing. It might become a time when the stock market's going down, but baseball cards are going up. And there are exchanges for baseball cards. There are exchanges for to buy shares in farmland, which has its own trends. Yes. I spoke to somebody who has that one of those companies. Yeah, or, or sometimes, you know, you always want to be open to new styles of investing and 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 learn about them. And that's another thing I had to do with with crypto is that it's not like buying stocks, it's a different beast. So do you do you feel more fearless in your investing now or wiser? How how do you categorize where you're at right now as you approach different opportunities? I think I feel more discerning. Mm. Like I don't, it's very rare that I make any investment now. I mean, investment has to be really good. And it's not because, oh, I don't need to invest. You know, you always need to invest and and provide for your family and, and do things and, and so on. So I do look for investments, but I would never day trade again. That I would never do just for this. I don't have the psychology for it anymore. I'm too old. I, will, I would have a heart attack and die. You know, I was reading about this woman who's 97 years old, who when she was four years old, she was a prodigy and she studied, she's the, she's the the only living person who has studied under Rachmaninoff, who was not only a composer, but the greatest piano player of his time in the early 1900s. And she he he said, play me a piece. And she played a piece for him that anybody for anybody else would be impossible, like some Chopin etude. And he said, that's horrible. And... She said, how could it be horrible? I've been practicing this for three weeks. And he said, come back when you've been practicing it for three years. So you have to really know something to do it. And you have to really know the asset classes very well that you're investing in before you trade. That's so interesting. Because you're talking about mastery right now. You're talking about mastering something, not just casually hearing about it. You're talking about spending the time, having the growth mindset, being willing to make mistakes to actually master something. You should not invest professionally, which means for other people or for yourself to make a living. You should not invest professionally until you have mastered it, which which means you have to invest a lot, but just in very small amounts until you've really Mm. mastered it. And then you have to master every asset class you're going to be investing in. Like, I'm not going to buy a bunch of apartment buildings to rent out the apartments if I don't really understand everything about real estate investing, which is an area, quite frankly, I'm weak on. I know people today, adults who invest millions of dollars who say a stock is cheap because it's trading for $5 a share, but another stock is expensive because it's trading for $300 a share. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's not how stocks are expensive. What's the market cap? What's the price over cash flows. What are those cash flows made out of? Or, or, or what are the customers? What are the write-offs? What are, what's the debt? A lot of people make decisions based on price. I make decisions based on what is the story that I believe in here? Is this company going to do well? Is this crypto going to do well? Is this mm-hmm. area of the United States going to do well? And if, as long as the st- I have what I call story stops, as long as the story doesn't change, I'm not going to double down, but I'll stay in the play. Yeah. So discipline and patience. You also talk about your blog is great, by the way. I just was poking around and there's just so many, so many great things in there. But you talk about uh, a daily practice for success. And I thought this was interesting because it's not it's not trading strategies. It's not specific, which I think everybody wants 
the answer, right? They want sort of like the, the kind of guidelines. Yours are much broader. And they talk about things that really don't have anything to do with money, physical, emotional, uh, spiritual, mental. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. How did, you, how did you come to that? Could you just talk a minute about that? Mindset's everything. So how do you have a good mindset? You, ha- you have to have energy. At night, we go to sleep because we run out of energy for the day. You shouldn't do investing when you're real tired. So, so physical health gives you physical energy. Emotional health, you know, if you're arguing with your spouse all the time, you probably are not going to have enough energy to write a book or compete in a sports event or invest or, or do whatever it is that you, that you want because you're competing against really good people who have the energy. So emotional health is important. Creative health is very important. That's why I write these 10 ideas a day. So I know I'm going to, you know, some people think lightning's going to hit when when they when they have the right idea. Lightning doesn't hit. You have to you have to earn the ability to have good creative ideas. And then spiritual health, you know, that's not about religion. It's just like okay, I can't really control. I have to surrender to what's happening. It's too bad this one company um, went to zero. I was invested, but I've got to move forward. I got I can't cry about it for more than you know a day because I gotta I gotta live my life and. So this, it's a very selfish thing, this daily practice, because it's the only way, you know, I, I play, um, I play chess. I'm a, a nationally ranked chess master and I took a 25 year break and I've recently started playing in tournaments again. And it's very visceral how much energy, when I was in my twenties, I had so much more energy than now. Like I have to really plan how I'm going, going to, in the, in the middle of a tournament, how am I going to replenish my energy? Because all these little kids now who have taken over the game, because that's how they're getting into college these days, is they have enormous amounts of energy. And, and I got to be able to keep up with it. Well, James, we've loved having you today. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. And again, congratulations on such a, a fascinating concept. It reminds me of, I remember I, 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 I ran into these podcasters in this studio and I said, oh, what's the name of your podcast? And the name of their podcast was Denzel Washington is the greatest actor ever, period. And, <laughs> and so every episode was like another uh, Denzel Washington movie where they would, introduce, they would interview extras and cast members and you know <laughs> critics. And it was just such a fun filter for a podcast. And this is like a fun filter. James, thank you so much. I hope we get to meet in person one day. That would be so fun. Yeah, eventually. I'm sure we will. Hey, everybody. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet zero and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in Engrave.io shop with the code Real Vision.